you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11 this morning. Romans 11. Well, it is uh, good to be back with you in the midst of doing what we need to do to uh, raise support and travel and visit with people. Uh, it's uh, difficult being away from you, our church family, and I know that uh, uh, I feel um, quite energized to be back with you, uh, to be home. Uh, and to be among you. So I'm thankful for uh, Richard and Doug and how they have uh, stepped up and have been faithful expositors of God's Word to uh, stand alongside me behind this sacred desk and bring you God's Word. But I also know that it's a joy and a privilege for me to be back with you doing that as well. As we pick up in Romans chapter 11, we remember where we've been so far in the book of Romans, but especially in the last few chapters, chapters 9, 10, and now 11, where Paul is seeking to answer this question, has God failed to keep His word? Has God failed to keep His saving promises to His people? For He made a covenant with Israel. He gave them promises of salvation. He sent them Christ. And yet, by and large, they have not believed taken as a nation as a whole, though we know there are individuals and there are several thousand, we see in acts of Jews that have believed, they are not representative of the entire nation. And so Paul is seeking to answer this question, has God rejected his people? Have, has he failed to keep his promise? And of course, all along in these chapters, he's been arguing, no, no, no. And now he puts the final no, as it were, in his argument. And we begin reading in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, to see what that argument is. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. No, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their fa failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, 
Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. (coughs) For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be granted in, for God has grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and understanding of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor, who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And amen. This is the reading of God's Word. May He bless it to our lives this morning. Paul asks this, Has God rejected His people? And the answer is by no means. And what he wants to show is that there is both present and a bigger future salvation for Israel that is to come. But how can we know that? How can we be confident of that? Paul says that he can know about this future mercy for Israel, number one, by remembering God's faithfulness. We need to remember God's faithfulness. We see this in verses 1 through 10. As Paul leads us to remember God's faithfulness, he first shows us that God is faithful to His covenant. God is faithful to His covenant. Paul asks, how do I know that God has not rejected His people? First of all, I am a Jew. Not me, John Bodkin, but Paul, the person who's writing the letter. He's saying, look, just look at me. I am exhibit A. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people for he, whom he foreknew. Paul says, look, if you're looking around and wondering where are all the Jews, first of all, look at me and look at what God has done. I was an enemy. I was persecuting his people and yet he showed mercy on me. God has not rejected Israel with whom he has made a covenant because there is a remnant that he is saving even in Paul's day and even today, a remnant that is part of the church. The nation as a whole may not believe, but the Lord has kept a small group of them for himself. And Paul illustrates that by appealing to 1 
Kings 19. Now, some of us have read that very recently. Remember the great contrast between chapters 18 and 19. In 18, Elijah confronts Ahab, a wicked king over Israel, and the false prophets of Baal. (coughs) And what what do we see there? This great contest between the false god Baal and the one true and living God, Yahweh. And what happens? Yahweh prevails. Why? Because Baal's not real. He's not a real God. He's not there. He can't hear the prayers of the false prophets. And so God uh, prevails. He emerges victorious. His prophet is victorious. The false prophets are destroyed. His prayers are answered by fire coming from heaven and the ending of a three-year drought. But as much as Elijah should have been on a spiritual high, King Ahab's wicked wife Jezebel is enraged because she is a worshiper of Baal, not the Lord. And therefore, she sends a message to Elijah and says, listen, you know how I've killed every single prophet here in the northern kingdom? I'm coming for you next because of this. And Elijah becomes frightened and he flees. Then fleeing to the wilderness, he becomes depressed, not only because he feels like he has failed, he has displayed faithlessness after this amazing victory and display of faith, but also because he believes he's the only godly person left in Israel. He's looking around, he says, there's no other, there's nobody but me and they're going to kill me, God. What in the world is going on? Lord, they have killed your prophets, he says. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says, listen, just because you can't see what's happening doesn't mean that I'm not at work. I've got plans going on that you have no idea about, so stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're not the last one. And frankly, Elijah, you're not all that important. I've got 7,000 more who have not bowed the knee. And what does Paul say? So too at the present time, in his day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer based on works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul reiterates what we saw in chapter 9, what we see later in this chapter, that left to themselves... Just like in the Old Testament, all of Israel would just turn away from God because by nature we are sinful. But what has God done? By his sovereign election based on grace, not the works of people, he has kept a people for himself. He has kept a remnant up until Paul's day and in Paul's day and even till today of the nation of Israel for himself. But what about the rest of Israel? What about the rest of the nation? What about those that are not part of the remnant? Paul shows that this is not the result of God rejecting his people, that those that do not believe are not a sign that God has cast them off, but rather him being faithful to his character. God is faithful to his character. What are we to make of this, Paul asks? Because not all in Israel were saved. We understand that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That's what Paul says. What were they seeking? Do you remember from chapter 9? They were seeking a law that would lead them to righteousness. So in contrast to what Paul has just said, that salvation comes by grace, they were seeking it by works. They thought if they obey the law, they will achieve righteousness and be saved. And Paul says they failed to obtain that. And of course, he argued in chapters, uh, at the beginning of the the book, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, that and 6 and 7... (laughs) salvation and righteousness does not come by keeping the law. Keeping the law flows from those who've already put their faith in God for salvation. Instead, he says, Israel was hardened. 
Now, perhaps even as we read verses 7 through 10, you'll understand why these are some difficult verses. These are some of those verses that, apart from uh, someone who really wants to tackle a difficult subject or expository preaching, you don't hear sermons on very much. In fact, up until this week, I had never heard a sermon on these verses, the hardening of Israel. I had to go looking for one, all right? But the question is, do we want to operate based on our feelings and what is comfortable or on what God's Word actually says? So I want to repeat what I heard another preacher say about this passage. I didn't write these verses. The mailman doesn't write the mail. He just delivers it. At the same time, if we're seeking God's wisdom, we need to understand what's taking place in these verses. So let's go back to verse 5 and let's listen to these in context. (coughs) At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So what is Paul doing? He's quoting from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 and from David's prayer in Psalm 69. And what he is saying is that God did a work of hardening in Israel. That hardening blinded them to God's mercy and therefore from salvation. We need to remember what Paul said back in chapter 9 as we think about that. There is no injustice on God's part. And so what we need to understand is that this does not somehow make God unjust, nor is it arbitrary. In fact, I think if you go back this afternoon, you look at Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29 and Psalm 69, what you will see is that in the context of these passages, this hardening is just. It is what scholars call a judicial hardening. When sinners turn away from God, when they reject His ways, and when they worship idols, eventually God gives them over to their sin. We saw that in Romans chapter 1 as well. If you run from God long enough, if you plug your ears and cover your eyes and say, God, I don't want anything to do with you, I don't want anything to do with you, I don't want anything to do with you, then grace ceases to operate in your life. God hardens your heart. He gives you over to your sin, and you're done. You're not coming back. And that's exactly what we see happening here against Israel. Paul says something similar in 2 Thessalonians about Gentiles as well. He says there in chapter 2, he says there are the wicked that are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's their responsibility, right? They refuse to love the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this delusion, like the hardening, comes from God as a judgment against those for their unbelief. And in these things, God's character is revealed. First of all, The message of salvation, the message of truth had come to these people and in that we see the grace and mercy of God. 
If God didn't care about humanity, if he didn't care about these people at all, then he would never have sent the gospel to them in the first place. He never would have allowed them the opportunity to hear of his willingness to forgive and save a people for himself. And secondly, that message that was rejected, that gospel that was turned away from, God punished those who rejected his offer of salvation, revealing the holiness of his character. God loves sinners. He, he extends open arms to them. There, there is a, a general stance. We sometimes think of, uh, of God having a stance of just like, you know, fire and brimstone, just waiting to be unleashed. But what we actually see from the prophet Ezekiel is that God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There is kind of an open invitation, outstretched arm that says, come to me, look to my son, find forgiveness and life. He is willing to save. But to those who reject him, to those that turn away, he will not allow their sin to go unpunished. He has provided salvation by punishing sin in Christ for his people. But if you will not accept that and you reject being a part of his people, then you will suffer and perish for your sins. There's no other way of salvation. God will be faithful to himself. And so once again, as we think through what Paul is arguing for here, we think about the fact that God has, by his sovereign grace, elected, chosen a remnant out from larger Israel for himself and hardened the rest. We're still left wondering, okay, but, but what about the rest? What about the rest of Israel? You said that, that God has not rejected them, but it looks like he has. And so here we need to see not just remembering God's faithfulness, but now in verses 11 through 32, we need to spend time reflecting on God's salvation. Reflect on God's salvation. <clears throat> in this section, Paul explains the sovereign purposes of God in the, the outworking of salvation. How, how does this actually come about for all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles? And it's one of those passages that frankly can make your head spin a little bit by its implications. The first thing we need to observe is the, is the magnitude of salvation. The magnitude of salvation. M-A-G-N-I-T-U-D-E, for those of you wondering. Magnitude of salvation. In other words, why did Israel stumble? Why did a sovereign God allow them to experience unbelief and hardening? Verse 11, Paul says, was it an order that they might fall? Did God harden them so that he could, he could judge the entire nation? No. Rather, that through their trespass, salvation had, might come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So, so think about here for a minute the size, the magnitude of God's salvation. When you read the Old Testament, if you're not reading carefully, you might get the impression that God is just concerned for the nation of Israel. For one small little group of people, one little isolated ethno-linguistic group in the Middle East. And that's it. But what does he say here? God's plan is massive. Because the hardening of Israel, the hardening of the Jews, means a flourishing, a salvation, a redemption, a reconciliation of the Gentiles. Why is that so massive? Because in this sense, humanity is broken down to only two groups. Either the Jews, one small little people group, or the Gentiles, everybody else. Which means 
Thank you very much. Which means we're here right now because of the hardening of the Gentile, because of the hardening of the Jews. We Gentiles have experienced salvation because of that. And not just us, but all the nations of the world will experience salvation because of this hardening. In other words, God's plan is global. It is massive. It's a vision beyond any one group of people. So this morning as we think, just at the beginning, how grateful we ought to be as we reflect on God's salvation, that following the command of Christ and the example of the apostles, someone began taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations. And here we are today as the fruit of that labor. How much more then ought we to continue that same ministry today, either by going to our neighbors or going to the nations? You know, in war movies, whether it's realistic or whether it's fantastical, you often have this dramatic scene in the final battle where someone is uh, carrying the flag of the nation or the standard of the kingdom or the, the, the banner of some battalion or regiment and they are leading the charge against the enemy and that person is wounded, perhaps fatally. As they begin to go down in slow motion, you see the flag falling as well and there's a sense of kind of hopelessness. They're not going to make it. And coming up behind him, some, someone, will, someone else will kneel down and pick up that, that flag and they will move forward holsting high that standard to say, no, we're not giving up. There's hope. We are going to be victorious in this battle. And they begin charging away. Well, it can be a very inspirational scene in the movie, but behind that image, it's a very powerful question. Are we going to take up the banner of Christ, the standard of the gospel from those that have gone on before and whether through infirmity or old age or death or even martyrdom, have fallen to the ground. And therefore, we will go and fulfill their mission. The mission that's not going to end until Christ himself returns. Are we going to join the forward movement of the gospel of, uh, of Christ through all nations, through acts of love and the preaching of the gospel? That's a question that should weigh heavy on us because that's God's plan. It is, a, it is a massive plan. It's not just about us and now we're okay so we're done, but it's about all the peoples of the world, all of the Gentiles. Paul gives us a glimpse of the magnitude of salvation, but he also shows us its mystery. And so as we reflect on God's salvation, we need to consider the mystery of salvation. The mystery of salvation once again, we're diving deep into the waters of the Bible's teaching, in part because so many people believe so many different things about this passage. So if you decide you're going to start Google searching sermons on Romans 11, you might find people that believe some pretty different things from me about this. That's okay. Uh, we're all on a journey together, trying the best we can to understand God's Word, and this is where I'm at this morning on these verses. But in terms of the details... Doesn't mean we need to break fellowship with other Christians who would believe something different. I want to draw your attention to verse 11 and notice that while Israel's sin would mean salvation for the Gentiles, the salvation of the Gentiles is meant to do what? To provoke jealousy for God in Israel, that they might experience salvation again. Isn't that amazing? Now, no, typically we think of jealousy as a bad thing, right? But it's not always portrayed as a bad thing in the Bible. If, if Melinda and I are out... Uh, on a date at a restaurant and the, the server 
begins spending a little too much time talking to her, kind of winking and, and whatever else, there should be a, a good jealousy that rises up within me. Not going to tolerate that, right? We'll take another server, please, right? Likewise, when we think about the jealousy that Paul is talking about here, I think that Tom Schreiner provides an excellent illustration. He says, imagine two sons, one natural born and one adopted. The natural born son perhaps is older. He's a little bit complacent. He's taken his parents for granted. And now this young adopted son comes in. And one day he looks over and he sees the father with the adopted son and they're romping around the floor. They're reading a book. They're doing whatever. They're showing their affection for one another. And suddenly welling up within that older natural born son is, is a good jealousy that says, hey, that's my father too. And he wants to run over and join in the love, not because he's jealous of the brother, because he's jealous for the affection of the father. He remembers how good and loving and kind his father is, and he wants to experience that kind of intimacy just as the adopted son is. So too with Israel. Being the covenant people of God who rejected God in their sinfulness, Paul says they will be provoked to love God once more when they see the Gentiles enjoying salvation with their God. Paul says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now think about, up to this point, what's he been talking about? Remnant. A small number of them. And now he's talking about full inclusion. And so I think from the outset here, Paul is signaling as we see it developed, there is a future salvation for ethnic Israel that goes well beyond a remnant. We see Paul calling this a mystery in verse 25. In other words, it's something that was previously hidden and now revealed in Christ. And so let's walk through these verses and unpack this mystery. First of all, in verses 12 through 15, notice the contrast that's there. In other words, what we're going to do is see why is it or how is it? How do we know there is a future salvation for ethnic Israel? That's what we're trying to see here. And the contrast is seen in verses 12 through 15 when the nation as a whole is depicted in terms of what? Trespass and failure. That's what he's talking about. That's how he describes the nation. They've sinned and they failed to obtain God's promises. It's a remnant, but as a whole, No. And then notice the contrast. There is a coming day of full inclusion. In other words, more than a remnant. Paul says there is a time of acceptance and life from the dead that is coming. Now later, we'll talk about that unless I forget about it. But I think that that bears uh, an important aspect of understanding what this is going to look like. That phrase, life from the dead. So remember that and ask me about it. Later, if I forget, verse 16, Paul argues that if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, what's he talking about? Ethnic Israel. And he's talking about, what is he talking about? That which comes from them. So I think the dough and the root refer to the great patriarchs of Israel. They are holy, he says, not in the sense of being morally superior, but that God set him apart for himself. Isn't that what he did with Abraham? In Genesis 11, he calls to him. He is an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. He's not worshiping the Lord. He doesn't know who Yahweh is, but God sovereignly chooses him to be the one who will bring the gospel blessings to the world. And he makes a covenant with him. 
And he takes a man who was old and his body has failed and never produced a son and gives him a biological son. And he tells that son, the same promises that I made to Abraham, I'm making to you. And that son has a son, but it's not the older son, it's the younger son who bears the promises. And God says, I'm going to make you the promise bearer now. And Paul says, what is God doing? He's setting apart those things for himself. And that since they are holy from the world. Therefore, if the fathers are holy, how much more the children, right? They are holy as well. And like everyone in that new covenant age, they must believe the gospel. As we will see later, not all the Jews will be saved or will be saved just by being Jews. They must believe the gospel. In verses 17 through 24, this extended metaphor of the nourishing root and the branches of the olive tree are, are given. Here, the tree is pictured as all of God's people, those who put their faith in him and experience salvation. Paul says at the present time, the natural branches, the Jews are cut off. There's not a lot of Jews being saved. But the wild shoots, those from the uncultivated trees, those, as Paul would say elsewhere, who did not have the promises, who did not have the covenants, who had no idea who God was and was not part of his people, those Gentiles, they're snipped off the wild branches and they're grafted in. Now, someone who knows much more about botany will understand that that's actually a practice that you can take and, and move branches around. I have no idea how that works and we don't need to know how it works because it's a metaphor, it's a picture. But what does he say is going to happen? The natural branches are going to be brought back. Speaking of the Jews, Paul says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In fact, in verses 25 through 26, Paul explains this mystery to us. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. When? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, those are important verses, and they're also kind of difficult to, to get our heads around. And I can remember being in seminary and having a discussion with, with somebody about it. And he was adamant. God is doing nothing in the future with ethnic Israel. It's done. They just get saved as part of the church and that's it. And he gave me a tape from his pastor, another student there um, that I admired, thought he was a, a, guy, a, a good guy, but I just didn't buy his argument here. His argument here was that all Israel means the people of God as a whole, including only the Jewish remnant and the Gentiles. In other words, all Israel here means the church. And as one scholar said, if all Israel doesn't mean ethnic Israel, words have no meaning. I mean, for the last three chapters, he, what has he done? He has contrasted Israel, Gentiles, Israel, Gentiles. Are you telling me in the middle of the chapter, suddenly Israel is going to mean everybody? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I do think elsewhere, like Galatians 6, Paul can use the word Israel to describe the church, all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles together, Galatians chapter 6. But in the context, that's not what's going on. Even just in verse 25, the entire emphasis is on this time of the Gentiles to experience gospel faith. Then Israel will experience gospel faith. 
All Israel doesn't necessarily mean every single Jew because it's contrasted with a partial hardening, right? And so that means a more full and inverse, like if only 10% are believing, then, then by contrast, it may be 90% will be believing later. It doesn't have to be full, but the point is, at some point in the future, the majority of Israel will come to faith in Christ. That's how well they, will, they will be saved. You say, when's that going to happen? Well, I think we're given two clues. Number one, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. What does that mean? How do we know when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? Well, do you remember what Jesus promised in Matthew, I think, 25? The gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. What does life from the dead mean? In the New Testament, it's always about the resurrection. When's the resurrection going to take place? At the end when Christ returns, right? Isn't that what Paul says right here in verse 26, the very next verse, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish unrighteousness, or excuse me, ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Christ is the deliverer who comes from the heavenly Zion for his people. I think what Paul is telling us is this, as the gospel goes to all nations, that mysterious number of believers that God knows will come from the Gentiles will be complete and a revival will break out among Israel and that will, that will bring about the return of Christ. Now, some have even made the argument, and I, that's fine, it might be true, I don't know. Some have made the argument that it will happen exactly when Christ returns. So that just like Paul, who was blown off his animal by the glory of the resurrected Christ directly to him, preaching the gospel, so also the returning Christ might directly and immediately preach the gospel to Israel. And in that way, they will be saved. I don't know, but I think all of it points to the fullness of the Gentiles will believe, and then all Israel will be saved at the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of his covenant to forgive us our sins because of his shed blood. How do we respond to these things? Well, two ways. It begins, first of all, with reflecting on the mercy of salvation. The mercy of salvation. Paul says in verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, speaking to Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so too now so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. What does that last phrase mean? Well, it's just Genesis 3. It's the fall. Adam and Eve sinned, and now all have sinned as a result. Why? Because this allows God to show mercy on Jews and Gentiles alike. Remember, Paul, part of Paul's desire is to bring unity to the Jewish and Gentile Christians with whom there is great friction at this point in the church at Rome. Paul specifically talks to the Gentiles and he says, listen, don't get presumptuous. Don't get arrogant. Don't get prideful just because the gospel is exploding among you and not the Jews. Remember, he says, verse 18, be humble because it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You were grafted in not natural born. Don't take that for granted. Don't get arrogant when salvation has come from the merciful hand of God, not anything special about you. Therefore, we ought to do two things. First of all, we need to remember our roots. 
We need to remember our roots, specifically our Jewish roots. As Gentile believers, we've been grafted into the people of God, but Israel was there naturally. I mean, just on a real simple, practical level, how often do you read the Old Testament? How, how well do you know it? How often do you pray for the salvation of Israel, the ethnic people Israel? Now, we need to just have a caveat here because I know this trips up a lot of end times popularity preachers on television, but do not confuse the modern political state of Israel with the people group, the ethnic people group of Israel because that's not what Paul has in mind here. We don't look to the political state of Israel and say they are God's chosen people. They can do no wrong. We support them in everything. Absolutely not. We don't do that with America, right? We don't do that with our own country. If there's sin, then it's sin and we condemn it. If there's righteousness, then we rejoice in it. But, but we, we do not confuse a modern political state with the promise of blessing of salvation, gospel faith in Christ. They do not have a king as the old covenant law commands. They do not follow the old covenant law for ritual sacrifice and worship. They do not have the law as a governing document. And by and large, they do not worship Yahweh. Don't take old covenant Israel and say, oh, there it is over there in the Middle East. I, I've been there. No, no, no. Different. Altogether Different. We cannot sanction or excuse everything that modern Israel does at the same time. That doesn't mean we despise them either. Just the opposite. We not only remember our roots, but we pray the promises. We pray the promises that God has made that He tells us right here that they will be saved by faith in Christ. A day is coming and therefore we should pray for that day to come. We should pray for God to save them. Even now, the remnant is being saved and being brought into the church. A few years ago, when we had the on-mission celebration. We had a, a missionary to Argentina where there's lots of Jewish people and his ministry is directed specifically to them. And it's wonderful. We pray for that. We pray that God would give them spiritual sight to see Jesus as the Christ and to trust him for salvation. When we reflect on this chapter as well as the beginning of this larger section in chapter 9, we see this is one of those passages that can make your head spin by its explanation and implications. But more than anything, here's where Paul wants you to land. In, in, in the final verses, he wants you to, to consider everything that he said in chapters 9, 10, and 11, no matter how difficult, and he wants you to rejoice in God's glory. He wants you to rejoice in God's glory. First of all, in these verses, verses 33 through 36, we see the glory of God's person the glory of his person. I've told before the story of Legan Duncan's father who served in the Marines in the South Pacific during World War II. And as his division was making their way towards the invasion of Japan, uh, the, the, the fleet kind of met up over the, uh, the, the Marianas Trench, which is the, 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 the deepest part of any body of water anywhere on the earth. Uh, he was told that if you put Mount Everest if you could somehow just scoop it right up out of the earth and drop it down in the Marianas Trench, from the top of Mount Everest to sea level would still be a thousand feet of depth. They're going to be there for a while, and so they tell the guys, listen, if you want, we give you permission, jump over the edge and swim around in the trench. 
You get to go home and you get to tell people that you have swum in the deepest part of the ocean anywhere in the world. Not surprisingly, there weren't that many people that apparently did it. But Legan Duncan's father did. He jumped in and he said felt the vastness of the space beneath him. He said it was a strange thing to ponder that if he would somehow be able to touch the bottom like diving into a pool and coming back up, he would have to go down 30,000 feet. He said it was completely beyond him. Quote, I could not even comprehend how deep this water was. If we get our minds around that experience, we'll begin to understand in small part the depth of God himself. Paul comes to an end of these chapters as he's talking about Israel and the church and God's sovereignty and election, salvation by mercy and grace alone and a hardening that has come upon them. And what does he say? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? His riches refer to the infinite resources of God that flow from all His divine blessings, specifically those saving kindnesses expressed in the grace He shows to undeserving sinners. The knowledge of God is not our knowledge of Him, but His own knowledge. He knows everything. And wisdom speaks to the way that He applies that knowledge and, and richly accomplishes His purposes, especially in this context, His saving purposes in Christ for Jews and Gentiles even till today. What is Paul saying? He's saying there is an immeasurable depth to the knowledge and wisdom of God in working out the salvation for His people. He not only knows how to achieve it, but He has the power and authority to do so. God doesn't simply know what's going to take place in history ahead of time. He actively shapes reality. He ordains all the details of history in order to accomplish His purposes. Who can, who can fathom that truth? Who can plumb the depths of that reality? No one but God himself, says Paul. No angel, no demon, no human can ever know, fully know the mind of the Lord or give him advice as some kind of counselor, he says. God owes nothing to anyone for who could ever contribute something to him. From creation to salvation, God will never be in your debt, but you will forever be in his. We see the glory of his person, but secondly, we also see the glory of his purpose the glory of his purpose. Paul ends this doxology with verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In short, everything is about God. Paul says, from him are all things. What does that mean? Well, it means if it's here, it's because God wants it here. It came from him. He created all things. I, I, I have a creative streak in me, but it's almost always sparked by seeing a lack of something, a need that needs to be filled, or the imitation of something really cool that I saw that I can somehow mimic or reproduce. That's not with God. I mean, have you ever watched that BBC series, Blue Planet? And, you, and they, just, they just take these high-def cameras everywhere, up in the sky, down the depths of the ocean, all this kind of stuff. God imagined all of that. It started with a thought in his mind and he brought it into existence. Every burning star, every galaxy, every newborn baby being knit together in its mother's womb, every bee pollinating flowers in your yard, every snowflake forming in the skies of this never-ending winter. 
God not only imagined it, but he also brings it about. Because not, because not only are all things from him, but all things are through him. He not only creates, but he sustains that creation. Not just the physicality of it either, but us as spiritual beings. He is sustaining our existence as well as sustaining our faith. If we trust him, he is the one that will bring us home to glory. If we trust ourselves, we won't make it. Did not Paul warn that we ought to fear? We ought to fear hubris lest we fail to trust God and think somehow salvation is about us? And then he says, you're not going to make it. Who's going to cause us to make it? God is. He's the one that keeps us from falling. So on our blackest days, he gives us comfort that we might not turn away. Finally, he says that to him are all things. Many of you are familiar that the Puritans in England created a catechism, much like we went through last year. And the first question was this, what is the chief end of man? What is his primary purpose? Why is he here? Why did God make him? What is the one goal that should shape everything that we do and say and think? What is the chief end of man? The answer to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul says this is the very reason for which all things exist, God and His glory. Say, Paul, where'd you get that from? He got it from the Bible. God told us. Why did God create us? God says in Isaiah 43 that He will save people from all the nations, sons from afar and daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Why did God choose to save us even before creating us? He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. Why did God send His Son to be our Savior? Jesus said, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Why does God make His people holy? Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Why will God return to earth, ending history as we know it, and allowing us to share in heaven with Him? Second Thessalonians, those who reject the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. What's the point? This is not about us at all, in any way. Everything we are, everything that we do, say or think, is meant to be for God's glory. And if you get your mind around that, if you believe that, it is going to have a profound effect on how you live your life. From, from beginning to end, from sunup to sundown, it will change who you are. Because everything is going to be driven by one question. How will this bring God the most glory? In what I'm about to say, in what I'm about to buy, and how I'm about to spend my time, in the, the emotions that are welling up within me, how can I most bring glory to God? This will be seen not just in our long-term plans, but in the nitty-gritty of our daily life. It is a life-shaping verse on the most profound level. And Paul wants us to understand in the midst of all, all of the discussion and the thought and, and the seeking clarity about how, how God's sovereignty and human responsibility and the relationship between Israel and the church, all that works out, we understand 
at the end of the day, it is by him and from him and through him to his glory. In Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, we see a world that has experienced a devastating war that has left the world shattered and humanity barely surviving. The story revolves around one man who's lost his wife and is trying to keep a son alive and safe in the midst of tremendous difficulties of humanity's, humanity's new existence. During the day, as they trudge along in dark, rainy skies, weary of every stranger who might do them harm, wandering to find food, life is bleak. But at night, we're told, he dreamt of walking in a flowering wood where birds flew before them and the sky was aching blue. Paul has taken us on quite a theological journey today. But if you walk away with just one application, this is it. There is hope in God. In Paul's day, things looked bleak for his people Israel. We saw in chapter 10 that there was a stab of pain in his heart for them. He longed that they might believe. But what could Paul see? That a better day was coming, a day of salvation. And so can we. In, in the blackest days, and the darkest nights, we can know for certain that a better day is coming. There is the fullness of salvation on the horizon for all those that have put their faith in Christ. That's not a dream. That is a certain future because it's not based on the shaky assurances of sinful people, but on the infinite, limitless, all-powerful, merciful God who keeps His promises. So this morning, as God's people, be encouraged. Be encouraged. And for those that are struggling to make a decision, for those like like the people of Israel that Paul referenced in 1 Kings 19 who were limping between two gods. They couldn't make up their mind if, if just exclusively worshiping the Lord was worth it. They thought they might need all these other things. Don't delay in making your decision because the kindness and the mercy of God only lasts so long. One day Christ will return and there will be no chances left. Therefore today, Today, make today the day of your salvation. Look to Christ and find forgiveness in life. Father, we're so thankful for your son and the life and forgiveness that he brings. God, we're, we're thankful for your servant Paul who has sought to untangle the questions that we have in our mind about what you have done in the past with Israel, what you're doing with them now, and what you'll do in the future. How does that relate to us as Gentiles Father, I pray that more than anything, we will simply walk away astonished that we Gentiles have salvation at all. That you have shown us mercy in revealing Christ to us and drawing us to yourself as your people. Father, may we be thankful for our salvation, never haughty, never prideful. And God, may we long for the day when the gospel goes to all peoples, including the Jews. May we pray for their salvation, God. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen.